Since you've made it this far, you must be enjoying this book, and that makes me so happy. You deserve to sleep well every night, so be sure to check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed where you'll find exclusive bonus episodes. That way, you'll never run out of stories to put you to sleep. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. I'm glad you could be here tonight. This evening, we'll return to Jane Eyre. But before we begin, just take a moment for yourself. Imagine you are sitting in a plush armchair in a cozy, old-fashioned parlour. It's evening, and the candles lighting your space twinkle and flicker in the darkness. There is a fire crackling in the hearth next to you. You notice the flames dying out, but it's almost time for you to go to bed. So you don't need to add another log tonight. You have had a long, busy day. You take a deep breath in, and the warming smell of the fire hits your nostrils. And when you exhale, you sink further into your comfortable armchair. Last time, Jane was still at Moore House, feeling much recovered. She described Mary and Diane as kindred spirits, whom she looked up to for their beauty, intelligence, and talents. Their brother, St. John, while very handsome, was colder and much dedicated to his vocation in the church. A month passed, and the sisters were due to return to their roles as governesses with wealthy families. St. John offered Jane the position of schoolmistress at the new girls' school in Morton. Days before the ladies' departure, a letter arrived announcing the death of their uncle. Diana explained they had never met him due to a falling out between him and their late father, but their father had always hoped their uncle would leave his fortune to them upon his death. It appeared he instead bequeathed it to an unknown cousin. Jane moved into her cottage and began teaching. She was looking out at the moors, mourning the life she had left behind, when Mr. St. John arrived with his dog to drop off a gift left for her from his sisters. He saw she had been crying and asked if there was something wrong with her accommodations or her new job. She told him no, He went on to describe how unhappy he had been as a clergyman until he had found his calling as a missionary. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with Jane and Mr. St. John Rivers standing outside her cottage. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 31 continued. We might well then start when a voice, sweet as a silver bell, exclaimed, Good evening, Mr. Rivers, and good evening, old Carlo. Your dog is quicker in recognizing his friends than you are. He pricked his ears and wagged his tail when I was at the bottom of the field. And you have your back towards me now. It was true. 
though Mr. Rivers had started at the first of those musical accents, as if a thunderbolt had split a cloud over his head. He stood yet at the close of the sentence, in the same attitude in which the speaker had surprised him, his arm resting on the gate, his face directed towards the west. He turned at last with measured deliberation. A vision, as it seemed to me, had risen at his side. There appeared within three feet of him a form clad in pure white, a youthful, graceful form, full yet fine in contour. And when, after bending to caress Carlo, it lifted up its head and threw back a long veil, there bloomed under his glance a face of perfect beauty. Perfect beauty is a strong expression, but I do not retrace it or qualify it. As sweet features as ever the temperate clime of Albion molded, as pure hues of rose and lily, as ever her humid gales and vapory skies generated and screened, justified in this instance the term. No charm was wanting, no defect was perceptible. The young girl had regular and delicate lineaments, eyes shaped and colored as we see them in lovely pictures, large and dark and full. The long and shadowy eyelash which encircles a fine eye with so soft a fascination penciled brow, which gives such clearness, the white, smooth forehead, which adds such repose to the livelier beauties of tint and ray, the cheek, oval, fresh and smooth, the lips, fresh too, ruddy, healthy, sweetly formed, the even and gleaming teeth without flaw, the small, dimpled chin, the ornament of rich, plenteous tresses, all advantages in short which combined realized the ideal of beauty were fully hers. I wondered as I looked at this fair creature, I admired her with my whole heart. Nature had surely formed her in a partial mood, and, forgetting her usual stinted stepmother dole of gifts, had endowed this, her darling, with a grand dame's bounty. What did St. John Rivers think of this earthly angel? I naturally asked myself that question as I saw him turn to her and look at her, and as naturally, I sought the answer to the inquiry in his countenance. He had already withdrawn his eye from the peri and was looking at a humble tuft of daisies which grew by the wicked. A lovely evening, late for you to be out alone, he said, as he crushed the snowy heads of the closed flowers with his boot. Oh, I only came home this afternoon, she mentioned the name of a large town some twenty miles distant. Papa told me you had opened your school and that the new mistress was come, so I put on my bonnet after tea and ran up the valley to see her. This is she, she asked, pointing to me. It is, said St. John. Do you think you shall like Morton? She asked of me, with a direct and naive simplicity of tone and manner 
pleasing if childlike. I hope I shall. I have many inducements to do so, I replied. Did you find your scholars as attentive as you expected? She asked. Quite, I answered. Do you like your house? Oh, very much. Have I furnished it nicely? Very nicely, indeed. And make a good choice of an attendant for you in Alice Wood. You have indeed. She's teachable and handy. This, then, I thought, is Miss Oliver, the heiress favoured, it seems, in the gifts of fortune, as well as in those of nature. What happy combination of the planets presided over her birth, I wonder. I shall come up and help you teach sometimes, she added. It will be a change for me to visit you now and then, and I like a change. Mr. Rivers, I have been so happy during my stay away. Last night, or rather this morning, I was dancing till two o'clock. The regiment is stationed there since the riots, and the officers are the most agreeable men in the world. They put all our young knife grinders and scissor merchants to shame. It seemed to me that Mr. St. John's underlip protruded and his upper lip curled a moment. His mouth certainly looked a good deal compressed, and the lower part of his face unusually stern and square as the laughing girl gave him this information. He lifted his gaze, too, from the daisies, and turned it on her, an unsmiling, a searching, a meaning gaze it was. She answered it with a second laugh, and laughter well became her youth, her roses, her dimples, her bright eyes. As he stood mute and grave, she again fell to caressing Carlo. Poor Carlo loves me, said she. He is not stern and distant to his friends, and if he could speak, he would not be silent. As she patted the dog's head, bending with a native grace before his young and austere master, I saw a glow rise to that master's face. I saw his solemn eye melt with sudden fire and flicker with resistless emotion. Clushed and kindled thus, he looked nearly as beautiful for a man as she for a woman. His chest heaved once as if his large heart, weary of despotic constriction, had expanded despite the will and made a vigorous bound for the attainment of liberty. But he curbed it, I think, as a resolute rider would curb a rearing steed. He responded neither by word nor movement to the gentle advances made him. Papa says you never come to see us now, continued Miss Oliver, looking up. You are quite a stranger at Vale Hall. He is alone this evening, not very well. Will you return with me and visit him? It is not a seasonable hour to intrude on Mr. Oliver, answered St. John. Not a seasonable hour? But I declare it is. It is just the hour when Papa most wants company, when the works are closed and he has no business to occupy him. Now, Mr. Rivers, do come. Why are you so very shy, so very somber? She filled up the hiatus his silence left by a reply of her own. I forgot, she exclaimed, shaking her beautiful curled head as if shocked at herself. 
I am so giddy and thoughtless. Do excuse me. It had slipped my memory that you have good reasons to be indisposed for joining me in my chatter. Diana and Mary have left you, and more house is shut up. You are so lonely. I'm sure I pity you. Do come and see Papa. Not tonight, Miss Rosamond. Not tonight. Mr. St. John spoke almost like an automaton. Himself only knew the effort it cost him thus to refuse. Well, if you are so obstinate, I will leave you, for I dare not stay any longer. The dew begins to fall. Good evening. She held out her hand. He just touched it. Good evening, he repeated in a voice low and hollow as an echo. She turned, but in a moment returned. Are you well? She asked. Well might she put the question. His face was blanched as her gown. Quite well, he enunciated, and with a bow he left the gate. She went one way, he another. She turned twice to gaze after him as she tripped, fairy-like, down the field. He, as he strode firmly across, never turned at all. This spectacle of another's suffering and sacrifice wrapped my thoughts from exclusive meditation on my own. Diana Rivers had designated her brother inexorable as death. She had not exaggerated. Chapter 32 I continued the labors of the village school as actively and faithfully as I could. It was truly hard work at first. Some time elapsed before, with all my efforts, I could comprehend my scholars and their nature. There was a difference amongst them, and when I got to know them and they me, this difference rapidly developed itself. Their amazement at me, my language, my rules and ways, once subsided, I found some of these children to be sharp-witted girls enough. Many showed themselves obliging and amiable too, and I discovered amongst them not a few examples of natural politeness and innate self-respect, as well as of excellent capacity that won both my goodwill and my admiration. These soon took a pleasure in doing their work well, in keeping their persons neat, in learning their tasks regularly, in acquiring quiet and orderly manners. The rapidity of their progress, in some instances, was even surprising, and an honest and happy pride I took in it. Besides, I began personally to like some of the best girls, and they liked me. I had amongst my scholars several farmers' daughters, young women grown almost. These could already read, write, and sew, and to them I taught the elements of grammar, geography, history, and the finer kinds of needlework. I found estimable characters amongst them, characters desirous of information and disposed for improvement, with whom I passed many a pleasant evening hour in their own homes. Their parents then, the farmer and his wife, loaded me with attentions. There was an enjoyment in accepting their simple kindness and in repaying it by a consideration, a scrupulous regard to their feelings, to which they were not 
perhaps at all times accustomed, and which both charmed and benefited them, because while it elevated them in their own eyes, it made them emulous to merit the deferential treatment they received. I felt I became a favorite in the neighborhood. Whenever I went out, I heard on all sides cordial salutations and was welcomed with friendly smiles. To live amidst general regard is like sitting in sunshine, calm and sweet. Serene, inward feelings bud and bloom under the rain. At this period of my life, my heart oftener swelled with thankfulness than sank with rejection. And yet, reader, to tell you all, in the midst of this calm, this useful existence, after a day passed in honorable exertion amongst my scholars, an evening spent in drawing or reading contentedly alone. I used to rush into strange dreams at night, dreams many-colored, agitated, full of the ideal, the stirring, the stormy, dreams where amidst unusual scenes charged with adventure, with agitating risk and romantic chance, I still again and again met Mr. Rochester, always at some exciting crisis. Then the sense of being in his arms, hearing his voice, meeting his eye, touching his hand and cheek, loving him, being loved by him, the hope of passing a lifetime at his side would be renewed with all its first force and fire. Then I awoke. Then I recalled where I was and how situated. Then I rose up on my curtainless bed, trembling and quivering. And then the still, dark night witnessed the convulsion of despair and heard the burst of passion. By nine o'clock the next morning, I was punctually opening the school, tranquil, settled, prepared for the steady duties of the day. Rosamond Oliver kept her word in coming to visit me. Her call at the school was generally made in the course of her morning ride. She would canter up to the door on her pony, followed by a mounted livery servant. Anything more exquisite than her appearance in her purple habit with her cap of black velvet placed gracefully above the long curls that kissed her cheek and floated to her shoulders can scarcely be imagined. And it was thus she would enter the rustic building and glide through the dazzled ranks of the village children. She generally came at the hour when Mr. Rivers was engaged in giving his daily catechizing lesson. Keenly, I fear, did the eye of the visitress pierce the young pastor's heart. Sort of instinct came to warn him of her entrance, even when he did not see it, and when he was looking quite away from the door, if she appeared at it, his cheek would glow, and his marble-seeming features, though they refused to relax, changed indescribably, and in their very quiescence became expressive of a repressed fervor, stronger than working muscle or darting glance could indicate. Of course, she knew her power. Indeed, he did not because he could not conceal it from her. 
in spite of his Christian stoicism, when she went up and addressed him and smiled happily, encouragingly, even fondly in his face, his hand would tremble and his eye burn. He seemed to say with his sad and resolute look, if he did not say it with his lips, I love you and I know you prefer me. It is not despair of success that keeps me dumb. If I offered my heart, I believe you would accept it. That heart is already laid on a sacred altar. The fire is arranged round it. It will soon be no more than a sacrifice consumed. And then she would pout like a disappointed child. A pensive cloud would soften her radiant vivacity. But she would withdraw her hand hastily from his and turn in transient petulance from his aspect, at once so heroic and so martyr-like. St. John, no doubt, would have given the world to follow, recall, retain her when she thus left him, but he would not give one chance of heaven not relinquish for the Elysium of her love one hope of the true eternal paradise. Besides, he could not build all that he had in his nature, the rover, the aspirant, the poet, the priest, in the limits of a single passion. He could not, he would not, renounce his wild field of mission warfare for the parlors and the peace of Vale Hall. I learnt so much from himself in an inroad I once, despite his reserve, had the daring to make on his confidence. Miss Oliver already honoured me with frequent visits to my cottage, I had learned her whole character, which was without mystery or disguise. She was coquettish, but not heartless, exacting, but not worthlessly selfish. She had been indulged from her birth, but was not absolutely spoiled. She was hasty, but good-humoured, vain, She could not help it when every glance in her glass showed a flush of loveliness, but not affected, liberal-handed, innocent of the pride of wealth, ingenerous, sufficiently intelligent, happy, lively, and unthinking. She was very charming in short, even to a cool observer of her own kind like me. She was not profoundly interesting or thoroughly impressive. A very different sort of mind was hers from that, for instance, of the sisters of St. John. Still, I liked her almost as I liked my pupil Adele, except that, For a child whom we have watched over and taught, a closer affection is engendered than we can give an equally attractive adult acquaintance. She had taken with amiable caprice to me. She said I was like Mr. Rivers, only, certainly she allowed, not one-tenth so handsome, though I was a nice neat little soul enough, but he was an angel. I was, however, good, clever, composed, and firm like him. She was sure my previous history, if known, would make a delightful romance. One evening, while with her usual childlike activity and thoughtless, yet not offensive inquisitiveness. She was rummaging the cupboard and the table drawer of my little kitchen 
she discovered first two French books, a volume of Schiller, a German grammar and dictionary, and then my drawing materials and some sketches, including a pencil head of a pretty little cherub-like girl, one of my scholars, and sundry views from nature taken in the Vale of Morton and on the surrounding moors. She was first transfixed with surprise and then electrified with delight. Had I done these pictures? Did I know French and German? What a love, what a miracle I was. Would I sketch a portrait of her to show Papa? With pleasure, I replied, and I felt a thrill of artistic delight at the idea of copying from so perfect and radiant a model. She had then on a dark blue silk dress. Her arms and neck were bare. Her only ornament was her chestnut tresses, which waved over her shoulders with all the wild grace of natural curls. I took a sheet of fine cardboard and drew a careful outline. I promised myself the pleasure of coloring it, and, as it was getting late then, I told her she must come and sit another day. She made such a report of me to her father that Mr. Oliver himself accompanied her next evening. A tall, massive-featured, middle-aged, and grey-bearded man, at whose side his lovely daughter looks like a bright flower near a turret. He appeared a taciturn, perhaps a proud personage, but he was very kind to me sketch of Rosamond's portrait pleased him highly. He said I must make a finished picture of it. He insisted, too, on my coming the next day to spend the evening at Vale Hall. I went, found it a large, handsome residence, showing abundant evidences of wealth in the proprietor. Rosamond was full of glee and pleasure all the time I stayed. Her father was affable, and when he entered into conversation with me after tea, he expressed, in strong terms, his approbation of what I had done in Morton School, and said he only feared, from what he saw and heard, I was too good for the place would soon quit it for one more suitable. Indeed, said Rosamond, she is clever enough to be a governess in a high family, papa. I thought I would far rather be where I am than in any high family in the land. Mr. Oliver spoke of Mr. Rivers, of the Rivers family, with great respect. He said it was a very old name in that neighborhood, that the ancestors of the house were wealthy, that all of Morton had once belonged to them, that even now he considered the representative of that house might, if he liked, make an alliance with the best. He accounted it a pity that so fine and talented a young man should have formed the design of going out as a missionary. It was quite throwing a valuable life away. It appeared then that her father would throw no obstacle in the way of Rosamond's union with St. John. Mr. Oliver evidently regarded the young clergyman's good birth, old name, and sacred profession a sufficient compensation for the want of fortune. It was the 5th of November, and a holiday. My little servant, after helping me to clean my house, was gone, well satisfied with the fee of a penny for her Sid, 
all about me was spotless and bright, scoured floor, polished grate, and well-rubbed chairs. I had also made myself neat and had now the afternoon before me to spend as I would. The translation of a few pages of German occupied me an hour. Then I got my palette and pencils and fell to the more soothing, because easier, occupation of completing Rosamond Oliver's miniature. The head was finished already. There was but the background to tint and the drapery to shade off, touch of carmine too to add to the ripe lips, a soft curl here and there to the tresses, a deeper tinge to the shadow of the lash under the azured eyelid. I was absorbed in the execution of these nice details when, after one rapid tap, my door unclosed, admitting St. John Rivers. I'm come to see how you are spending your holiday, he said. Not, I hope, in thought. No, that is well. While you draw, you will not feel lonely. You see, I mistrust you still, though you have borne up wonderfully so far. I've brought you a book for evening solace, and he laid on the table a new publication, a poem. One of those genuine productions so often vouchsafed to the fortunate public of those days, the golden age of modern literature. Alas, the readers of our era are less favoured, but courage, I will not pause either to accuse or repine. I know poetry is not dead, nor genius lost. They will both assert their existence, their presence, their liberty and strength again one day. Powerful angels, safe in heaven. They smile when sordid souls triumph and feeble ones weep over their destruction. Poetry destroyed, genius banished. No, mediocrity, no. Do not let envy prompt you to the thought. No, they not only live, but reign and redeem, and without their divine influence spread everywhere, you would be in hell the hell of your own meanness. While I was eagerly glancing at the bright pages of Marmion, for Marmion it was, St. John stopped to examine my drawing. His tall figure sprang erect again with a start. He said nothing. I looked up at him. He shunned my eye. I knew his thoughts well and could read his heart plainly. The moment I felt calmer and cooler than he, I had then temporarily the advantage of him and I conceived an inclination to do him some good if I could. With all his firmness and self-control, thought I, he tasks himself too far blocks every feeling and pang within, expresses, confesses, imparts nothing. I'm sure it would benefit him to talk a little about this sweet Rosamond, whom he thinks he ought not to marry. I will make him talk. I said first, Take a chair, Mr. Rivers. But he answered, as he always did, that he could not stay. Very well, I responded mentally. Stand if you like, but you shall not go just yet. I'm determined. Solitude at least is as bad for you as it is for me. I'll try if I cannot discover the secret spring of your confidence and find an aperture 
in that marble exterior through which I can shed one drop of the balm of sympathy. Is this portrait like? I asked bluntly. Like? Like whom? I did not observe it closely, he replied. You did, Mr. Rivers. He almost started at my sudden and strange abruptness. He looked at me, astonished. Oh, that is nothing yet, I muttered within. I don't mean to be baffled by a little stiffness on your part. I'm prepared to go to considerable lengths. I continued. You observed it closely and distinctly. I have no objection to your looking at it again. And I rose and placed it in his hand. A well-executed picture, he said. Very soft, clear colouring, very graceful and correct drawing. Yes, yes, I know all of that. What of the resemblance? Who is it like? Mastering some hesitation, he answered. Miss Oliver, I presume. Of course. Now, sir, to reward you for the accurate guess, I will promise to paint you a careful and faithful duplicate of this very picture, provided you admit that the gift would be acceptable to you. Don't wish to throw away my time and trouble on an offering you would deem worthless. He continued to gaze at the picture. The longer he looked, the firmer he held it, the more he seemed to covet it. Tis like, he murmured. The eye is well managed. The colour, light, expression of perfect. Smiles. Would it comfort would it wound you to have a similar painting? Tell me that. When you're at Madagascar, or at the Cape, or in India, would it be a consolation to have that memento in your possession, or would the sight of it bring recollections calculated to enervate and distress? He now furtively raised his eyes. He glanced at me, irresolute, disturbed. He again surveyed the picture. That I should like to have it is certain. Whether it would be judicious or wise is another question, he replied. Since I had ascertained that Rosamond really preferred him and that her father was not likely to oppose the match, I less exalted in my views than St. John, had been strongly disposed in my own heart to advocate their union. It seemed to me that should he become the possessor of Mr. Oliver's large fortune, he might do as much good with it as if he went and laid his genius out to wither and his strength to waste under a tropical sun. With this persuasion, I now answered, As far as I can see, it would be wiser and more judicious if you were to take yourself the original at once. By this time, he had sat down. He laid the picture on the table before him, and with his brow supported on both hands, hung fondly over it. I discerned he was now neither angry nor shocked at my audacity. I saw even that he was thus frankly addressed on a subject he had deemed unapproachable. To hear it thus freely handled was beginning to be felt by him as a new pleasure, an unhoped-for relief. Reserved people often really need the frank discussion of their sentiments and griefs more than the expansive. The sternness 
seeming stoic is human after all, and to burst with boldness and goodwill into the silent sea of their souls is often to come further on the first of obligations. She likes you, I'm sure, said I as I stood behind the chair. Her father respects you. Moreover, she's a sweet girl, rather thoughtless. She would have sufficient thought for both yourself and her. You ought to marry her. Does she like me? He asked. Certainly. Better than she likes anyone else. She talks of you continually. There is no subject she enjoys so much or touches upon so often. It's very pleasant to hear this, he said. Very. Go on for another quarter of an hour. And he actually took out his watch and laid it upon the table to measure the time. But where is the use of going on? I asked when you are probably preparing some iron blow of contradiction or forging a fresh chain to letter your heart. Don't imagine such hard things. Fancy me yielding and melting as I am doing. Human love rising like a freshly opened fountain in my mind and overflowing with sweet inundation, all the field I have so carefully, with such labor prepared, so assiduously sown with seeds of good intentions, self-denying plans. Now it is deluged with a nectarous flood, the young seeds swamped, delicious poison cankering them. Now I see myself stretched on an ottoman in the drawing room at Vale Hall, at my bride, Rosamond Oliver's feet. She's talking to me with her sweet voice, gazing down on me with those eyes your skillful hand has copied so well, smiling at me with these coral lips. She is mine. I am hers. This present life and passing world suffice to me. Hush, say nothing. My heart is full of delight. My senses are entranced. Let the time I marked pass in peace. I humored him. The watch ticked on. He breathed fast and low. I stood silent. Amidst this hush, the quarter sped. He replaced the watch, laid the pitcher down, rose, and stood on the hearth. Now, said he, that little space was given to delirium and delusion. I rested my temples on the altar of temptation and put my neck voluntarily under the yoke of flowers. I tasted her cup. The pillow was burning. There is an asp in the garland. The wine has a bitter taste. Her promises are hollow. Her offers false. I see and know all this. I gazed at him in wonder. Tis strange, pursued he, while I love Rosamond Oliver so wildly with all the intensity, indeed, of a first passion, the object of which is exquisitely beautiful, graceful, fascinating. I experience at the same time a calm, unwarped consciousness. She would not make me a good wife, but she is not the partner suited to me. That I should discover this within a year after marriage that twelve months' rapture would succeed a lifetime of regret. This I know. Strange indeed, I could not help saying. While something in me, he went on, 
is acutely sensible to her charms. Something else is steeply impressed with her defects. They are such that she could not sympathize in nothing I aspired to. Cooperate in nothing I undertook. Rosamond, a sufferer, a laborer, a female apostle. Rosamond, a missionary's wife. No. But you need not be a missionary. You might relinquish that scheme. Relinquish? What? My vocation? My great work? My foundation laid on earth for a mansion in heaven? My hopes of being numbered in the band who have merged all ambitions in the glorious one of bettering their kind, of substituting peace for war, for the hope of heaven, for the fear of hell. Must I relinquish that? It is dearer than the blood in my veins. It is what I have to look forward to and to live for. After a considerable pause, I said, And Miss Oliver? Her disappointment and sorrow of no interest to you. Miss Oliver is ever surrounded by suitors and flatterers. In less than a month, my image will be effaced from her heart. She will forget me and will marry probably someone who will make her far happier than I should do. You speak coolly enough, but you suffer in the conflict. You are wasting away. No, if I get a little thin, it is with anxiety about my prospects, yet unsettled. My departure, continually procrastinated. Only this morning I received intelligence that the successor, whose arrival I have been so long expecting, cannot be ready to replace me for three months to come yet. Perhaps the three months may extend to six you tremble, become flushed whenever Miss Oliver enters the schoolroom. Again, the surprised expression crossed his face. He had not imagined that a woman would dare speak so to a man. For me, I felt at home in this sort of discourse. I could never rest in communication with strong, discreet, and refined minds whether male or female, till I had passed the outworks of conventional reserve and crossed the threshold of confidence and won a place by their heart's very hearthstone. You were original, said he, and not timid. There is something brave in your spirit, as well as penetrating in your eye, allow me to assure you that you partially misinterpret my emotions. You think them more profound and potent than they are. You give me a larger allowance of sympathy than I have a just claim to. When I color, when I shake before Miss Oliver, I do not pity myself. I scorn the weakness. I know it is ignoble a mere fever of the flesh, not, I declare, the convulsion of the soul. It is just fixed as a rock, firm, set in the depths of a restless sea. Know me to be what I am, a cold, hard man. I smiled incredulously. You have taken my confidence by storm, he continued. Now it is much at your service. I am, simply, in my original state, stripped of that blood-bleached robe with which Christianity covers human deformity. Cold, hard, ambitious man. Natural affection only of the sentiments has permanent power over me. Reason and not feeling is my guide. My ambition is unlimited. My desire to rise lighter, to do more than others, is insatiable. 
I honor endurance, perseverance, industry, talent, because these are the means by which men achieve great ends and mount to lofty eminence. I watch your career with interest because I consider you a specimen of diligent, orderly, energetic woman, not because I am deeply compassionate to what you have gone through or what you still suffer. You would describe yourself as a mere pagan philosopher, I said. No, there is a difference between me and deistic philosophers, and I believe the gospel. You missed your epithet. I'm not a pagan, but a Christian philosopher, a follower of the sect of Jesus. As his disciple, I adopt his pure, his merciful, his benignant doctrines. I advocate them. I'm sworn to spread them. One in youth to religion, she has cultivated my original qualities thus. From the minute seed, natural affection, she has developed the overshadowing tree philanthropy. From the wild, stringy root of human uprightness, she has reared a due sense of the divine justice, of the ambition to win power and renown for my wretched self. She has formed the ambition to spread my master's kingdom, to achieve victories for the standard of the cross. So much has religion done for me, turning the original materials to the best account, pruning and training nature. But she could not eradicate nature, nor will it be eradicated till this mortal shall put on immortality. Having said this, he took his hat, which lay on the table beside my pallet. Once more, he looked at the portrait. She is lovely, he murmured. She is well named the Rose of the World, indeed. And may not I paint one like it for you? I asked. No, he replied. He drew over the picture the sheet of thin paper on which I was accustomed to rest my hand in painting to prevent the cardboard from being sullied. What he suddenly saw on this blank paper was impossible for me to tell, but something had caught his eye. He took it up with a snatch. He looked at the edge, then shot a glance at me inexpressibly peculiar and quite incomprehensible, glance that seemed to take and make note of every point in my shape, face, and dress, for it traversed all, quick, keen as lightning. His lips parted as if to speak, but he checked the coming sentence, whatever it was, What is the matter? I asked. Nothing in the world, was the reply, and replacing the paper, I saw him dexterously tear a narrow slip from the margin. It disappeared in his glove, and with one hasty nod and good afternoon, he vanished. Well, I said, using an expression of the district, That caps the globe, however. I, in my turn, scrutinized the paper, saw nothing on it save a few dingy stains of paint where I had tried the tint in my pencil. I pondered the mystery a minute or two, but finding it insolvable and being certain it should not be of much moment, I dismissed soon forgot it.